so I wanted to take a minute and tell you about one of, uh, one of my favorite people uh, uh, really ever, one of the most influential people in my life is my grandfather. Uh, his name is Leo Abbott. He passed away 10 years ago about. Um, uh, but Leo was, was an amazing man. My uh, eldest son, Caleb, uh, who I told you a little bit about last week, his middle name is Leo uh, after my grandfather. And, and one of the images that, that is uh, imprinted on my mind is the first time my grandfather, Leo, held Caleb Leo. Uh, my son, Caleb, was, was small when he was born, six pounds, nine ounces, um, uh, if, if you're wanting the stats. But, uh, but, but he was a small, and, and I just remember my grandfather holding him in his, what seemed like giant hands, always seemed, his hands always seemed so big, kind of swallowed him up in, in, in kind of protection. I, I, his hands were something I'll always remember. I'll always remember how, how his, his strength, how his hands were strong up until the very end, even as his heart failed him. Uh, he always had this strength to him. Uh, he, he, was, he was awesome in so many ways. He was a World War II veteran, uh, and he never really talked about the war much, except late in his life, one summer afternoon, uh, he opened up a little bit. We were in the backyard and sitting on chairs that he had made with his own hands, and, uh, and I asked him about the war, and I'd always assumed that maybe he was some type of admin role in the war or something, maybe because I just couldn't conceive of him uh, doing anything that was actually dangerous, and he told me that, no, in fact, he was a, a, a machine gunner on the front lines in the Philippines, so as the Troops were storming Normandy on one side of the world. He was on the other side of the world behind a machine gun. It was just, it, it was crazy for me to think. Um, some other things that were impressive about him, he owned a men's clothing store, uh, high-end custom fashion uh, and grooming products, and he always had a comb and pomade in his pocket, and he'd kind of do this all the time. In fact, I think I can make a pretty good case that my grandfather was the first hipster. Stick with me on this. So beyond the grooming products and, and the high fashion thing, he uh, had a garden in his backyard that he tended, so urban gardening, uh, so there's that. Uh, he canned things a lot, a lot of pickle, pickling and canning of things. Uh, he, he made his own furniture, he made his own musical instruments, uh, like little hammer dulcimers were all over the house, uh, and he would much rather have made you a Christmas present than actually purchased one for you, hipster, right? So, uh, so I'm pretty sure my grandfather started it all, so we can thank him for this movement. Um, but he was such an awesome person. Uh, and one of the things that I think is maybe most impressive or most indicative of who he was is uh, he served with the Red Cross, served and volunteered with the Red Cross for 50 years. Uh, in fact, in Indiana, there is an award that's given every year for outstanding service that's uh, dedicated in his name, and that's the legacy that he had. Uh, for him, uh, this all centered around following Jesus, and following Jesus wasn't just something you believe, it was something you did. He used his hands to serve. As I mentioned before, we're in this series where we've been looking at the mission of God, and last week, we, we looked at how you don't have to get far in the scriptures to see that God is on mission. The first two chapters of, of the first book of the Bible in Genesis, you actually get a glimpse of, of God being on mission. You see him creating and then inviting us people, his creation, into that creative process to take the created world and continue to tend it toward his good intentions. That's the mission. And anywhere where that has gone awry or gone undone in the world, either in people's lives or in relationships, it's our mission to point people back to God. So that mission continues today. And we've been looking at these different aspects, like I mentioned before, of how to engage in God's mission with our, with our minds, our, our knowledge, with, with our uh, emotions, with our heart, and now our hands or our actions. 
And so we've been walking through this process of, of what it means to know enough about what God is up to to care and then care enough to actually act. And we're at this final stage, the action part today. And we've been doing this, uh, looking at these things through the lens of Paul's letter to the Romans, in particular, chapter 12. This is an interesting point in, in the book of Romans. Up to this point, Paul has been talking about who God is and what he's done. God's great love, his great sacrifice, his great uh, service for us, for us to be back into his fold. And now he says, in light of that, in light of God's great love, now live this way. And this is the hinge in the book of Romans. And Paul, this is in your bulletin, or if you have your Bibles, you can look at it. But Paul begins chapter 12 by saying, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's great mercies, to present yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to the Lord. This is your true and proper worship. He says, Don't be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Then you will be able to know and test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. So Paul here is inviting us into a sacrifice, to present ourselves as a living sacrifice. And, and the word here is kind of a, a, a full-bodied sacrifice, somata in, in the Greek. A full-bodied sacrifice, an all-in response. In view of God's mercy, push all the chips to the center. Go all-in with God in your sacrifice. Present your entire being as a living sacrifice. And when we hear the word sacrifice in our context, it may have a slightly different connotation than it did in the original context to the original hearers. For us, it may be uh, a picture of someone foregoing a portion of their freedom for the sake of someone else's freedom, a, a sacrifice, a service. Maybe you think of someone like I do my grandfather when I hear that word sacrifice. And that's a good thing, and that's absolutely part of what Paul is getting at. But when the first hearers would have heard Paul say, present yourselves as a living sacrifice, they would have gone back to the temple in Jerusalem, to the sacrificial system that Israel was called into. And when sacrifices were made in the Old Testament, it was an important part of their worship, an important part of, uh, of what they were called to. And it was uh, the idea of atoning for a sacrifice, or for a, for a sin, you give a sacrifice. You fully give something up. And so you would put a sacrifice on the altar with no expectation of getting it back. You pushed it all in. And it was an important part of, of, of who they were and what they were called to because the whole thing is God knows and God's people knew that there's actually a risk in blessing. When we're blessed, there's actually a risk. The risk is that we begin to align ourselves to the gift and forget about the giver. And so God set up this system where he said, bring a portion of that back to remember the giver and not just the gift. And though we're no longer under that sacrificial system because Jesus came to live and love and die for our sake, to become that sacrifice for our sake, the sacrificial life is still the call of the believer. Biblical commentator Alexander McLaren says this, the master word of the outward life of the Christian is sacrifice. It includes two things, self-surrender and surrender to God, which aren't exactly the same thing. Self-surrender and surrender to God. That's letting go of my agenda to take hold of his. So what do we struggle with in this idea of surrender, this idea of sacrifice? Like, what is it hard for us to give up. Well, if I had a, a quiz for you right now and I had a bunch of things listed and you checked the box, I think two of the boxes that would be checked most are our time and our money. These are difficult things 
to give up. And these aren't the only things we need to surrender to God to join him in his mission, but they are two things that seem to be most difficult for us to surrender. I mean, for some of us, when we even heard that topic, when we heard those two words, time and money, the idea that maybe those things aren't truly ours and maybe God might be asking me to surrender those things is a very uncomfortable position to be in. It doesn't sound right. I think the reason that Jesus talks about it so often is this very reason. It's not that these are the most important things to give up. It's just the things that might be the most difficult for us to give up. 16 of the 38 parables that Jesus spoke about talked about how to handle time and money. In the Gospels, one out of 10 verses, 288 to to be specific, are about how to handle time and money. For comparison's sake, there are about 500 verses in the scriptures that talk about prayer. Another 500 that talk about faith. There are 2,000 that talk about how to handle money and another 2,000 or so to talk about how we handle our time. It's talked about so often because these are things that take our heart and they bind it up. And so Jesus says, hey, I'm going to have to talk about these things because these are the things that are difficult to surrender. And I know for some of you, you just realized it. Like just now, it just clicked. You're like, oh no, this is a money talk. Like the guy's going to talk about money for the next 20 minutes and I invited a friend and now I invited him on the money week and this is the worst thing ever. Don't worry. Your friend's actually interested in how we talk about time and money around here. And if you're, if you're new with us, uh, like I said earlier, uh, no one asked you here for your money. No one asked you here for your money. Our hope is this service is a gift to you. Um, but if you decide to make this place your church home, this conversation about how we think about how to leverage time and money might be helpful in you understanding who we are and, and what we're about. And for those of you that are in the room that, that maybe you're not a follower of Jesus, maybe you're here and someone brought you and, and you're like, I don't know if I trust any of this. The question that I want you wrestling with that I hope that you'll wrestle with is, is Jesus who he said he was? Because that's the question that changes everything. So spend time on that. Maybe this is one that you put in your back pocket to a certain extent. But here's the thing. Even if you're not a follower of Jesus, The idea of generosity, which is really what we're talking about here today, generosity, this idea of generosity. Being generous in the world will still put you in good standing with the world and the people around you. And avarice or greed or self-centeredness will still drive a wedge between you and people in this world. So whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, my hope is that this is a helpful thing to engage with, and I hope you'll lock in with us. And there's this moment in Jesus' ministry where this seems to come into, into really tight focus, this idea of generosity and money and time and how we use it and what we should use it for and this idea of surrender, it seems to come into laser focus. And so we're actually gonna go there and spend time with Jesus on the side of a mountain north of Capernaum where a group of followers have have left everything to come hear him speak because they want to trust that God is worth listening to. And so we're going to go there. Where we're going is what's called the Sermon on the Mount. And it begins in Matthew chapter 5 like this. Jesus is starting to give a really radical standard. He starts by giving a radical standard of giving to those in need, this idea of, of giving away what we have for those who don't. He continues by giving this this radical uh, standard for what it means to to pray, how we pray in a way that affirms God and also invites him to change us. That's where we get the the Lord's Prayer. 
He goes on to give this radical standard of, of holiness, this idea that, that, that we should live in a way that's set apart from the world around us, different than the world around us, so that when the world sees us, they go, man, I want to be a part of that. He says things like, you've heard it said, don't, don't murder, right? Well, I say, don't even let anger burn. He says, uh, you've heard it say, don't commit adultery, but I say if lust is even part of the equation, you've already committed adultery. He said, you've heard it say, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. He says, no, 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 love them all. Love every single one of them, even the most unlovely. It's this radical standard for holiness. And then he gives this new picture of what it means to be free. Free in the sense that, that we're, that we're free to join him in what he's doing in the world and free from the idea that we have to build our own perceived safety around what we can accumulate. He says, don't store up treasures on earth. They'll just rot. Store up treasures in heaven. And this, this can be confusing. Like, well, what is he exactly talking about here? Well, essentially, here's what he's getting at. He says, if you pursue the kingdom of you, where you are at the center of your universe, you might actually attain it but you'll miss the kingdom you were made for. Don't store up treasures on earth. They'll just rot away. Store up treasures in heaven. Look that direction. And then he, he, he gets into this section of scripture, which I think is the most beautiful section of scripture, this poetry. We don't give Jesus much credit for being artistic, but he really is in this moment. There's also really challenging words as well, kind of wrapped up in this poetry. But he says this, starting in Matthew 6, verse 25 through 34. You can uh, look it up later if you have your Bible. Uh, study it. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful passage. But here's what he says. He says, don't worry about your life. Don't worry about what you'll eat, what you'll drink, what you'll wear. Don't worry about those things. He says, he says look at the birds of the air. They don't reap or sow or store up in barns, yet God provides for them. How much more valuable are you than they are? Look at the lilies of the field. They, 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 they don't labor or spin, yet I tell you, Solomon in all of his splendor couldn't compare to the beauty of those lilies. If God provides that much beauty for them, grasses that are here today and gone tomorrow, how much more will he provide for you? How much will he care for you? Jesus says, don't worry about what you'll eat, what you'll drink, what you'll wear. But he says this, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Jesus is saying, seeking God's kingdom, the one we're made for, not with us at the center, but with God at the center. Remember, we're giving up our agenda, but we're joining him in his. With God in the center, it has everything to do with generosity, both his, because he invited us in, and ours, because we have to put some skin in the game to participate. So this is about money, but it's not really about money. It's about being part of what God is up to through our generosity. Our generosity with our time and our talent, and yeah, even our resources, our stuff, that lines up with the heart of God and the mission of God. And Jesus is saying here something that, that seems kind of ridiculous. If you want all you need, Jesus is saying, then what you have to do is seek something outside of yourself. If you want all you need, you actually have to seek something outside of yourself, which sounds so strange, but there's actually social science that backs it up. 
there was a study by uh, a couple people called uh, Christian Smith and Hillary Davidson. They're not Christians, uh, but they did this study called The Paradox of Generosity. They put a book together. It's really fascinating if you're a nerd. Um, and, uh, and it says... Um, what seems obvious, right, that, that giving away your money and your time and your talents, giving that away involves a loss. You lose the thing that's, that's been given away. So if it's money, right, if I give money away, that money is gone. So you would think that, that that's a loss. If I give my time or my energy or my attention to someone else's concern, then similarly, that's a loss. That's an opportunity loss. I could be using my time for my own personal benefit, but I'm giving it away to someone else. So it makes sense that generosity would balance out to a deficit. But their extensive study actually shows something different. In fact, their study shows that uh, those who are generous receive back what they have termed goods uh, that are more valuable than what they gave. They actually receive something back that's more valuable than what was given, whether it's time or money or or whatever the case may be. And those goods that they receive back are, are, by and large, contentment, health, and purpose things that we actually need. Generosity is paradoxical. So Jesus and this study are both saying, don't spend your life pursuing things that will shackle you and and, and your plans and, and all the things that you can accumulate because they will not free you up and they will not deliver what they've promised. Those goods that we need, contentment, health, and purpose. So what Jesus is inviting those followers on the hill, and what's interesting about those followers on the hill is they'd left everything to follow him. They had already given to follow him. It was mostly a low-income agrarian society, so them being on the hill meant they weren't tending their fields and they weren't in the seas fishing. They had already left, they'd already given to trust that what Jesus had to say mattered. And what Jesus tells them in that moment is two things. Here's what you do. Here are two actions of sacrifice. Set your eye on the kingdom and loosen the grip of what you have. Set your eye on the kingdom and loosen the grip on what you have. Let's start with the first one. Set your eye on the kingdom. Okay, kingdom, what does that even mean? It's not a word we use all that often. If you're at the water cooler at your uh, work tomorrow, you're not going to be like, hey, what's going on with that kingdom stuff, right? Uh, For two reasons. One, we don't talk about kingdom that often. Two, we all have our individual stainless steel bottles now, and so no one hangs out at the water cooler anymore. That's like something from the 80s. But even if we did hang out at the water cooler, we wouldn't talk about kingdom because it's not talked about that often, but it is in the scriptures so often. So what is it? Well, here's what it is, as simple as I can state it. It's a reality where the invitation to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor as yourself is accepted. That's the kingdom. Where that's accepted by everyone, everywhere, at all times, then his kingdom has come in fullness. And until that point, We have work to do. And that might seem like a long way off, like a really long way off. In a a culture that that, that we experience anger and hatred and division, it seems absurd to think that there would be a reality where loving God and loving people is all there is all the time. But then Jesus says this. He says things like the kingdom is at hand, that God has drawn near. He, he, he says to the, to the wanderers, those travelers on the mountainside that day, he says, if you want a glimpse of the kingdom, look, I'm right here. It's very similar to what Paul is saying. Uh, he writes about 30 years after Jesus. He says, whatever's true, noble, right, pure, whatever is lovely or admirable, if there's anything excellent or praiseworthy, 
Think on these things. Translation, set your eyes on the kingdom. Focus on that. Focus on what God is up to in the world, that good thing and setting his good intentions on this world. Think on that, and there's actually a promise that comes with it. It's a promise we don't actually take God up on very often. If we think on these things, the promise is the God of peace will be with you. The result will be peace. So seeking the kingdom starts with with looking, with setting our eyes. That's why Jesus says, "Look, look at the birds of the air, look at the lilies of the field, look at me. God provides so much for you. He loves you that much. So the question for us is, what do we spend our time looking at? What do we spend our time dreaming about? Because honestly, that's what we're building. He's created you for so much to be a part of a kingdom. His good desire come on earth as it is in heaven, where loving God and loving people is all there is all the time in everyone. So seeking starts with setting our eyes on the things he's about, setting our eyes on that. And the promise is that God of peace will be with us as we do. But seeking doesn't end with with looking. Seeking the kingdom takes a, a further action, a second action. And this is a step that you actually can't jump over to take Jesus at his words, to take up his invitation to seek the kingdom and his righteousness. There's a step you can't jump over. To seek the kingdom takes loosening the grip on what we can easily hold on to too tightly. Our time and our resources, our stuff. And at the heart of this is control. Who controls the stuff? Control is actually the antithesis of surrender, by the way. Who, Who controls my stuff? Who controls how my stuff is leveraged? And the question for us is the same one that was asked on that mountainside. Can I trust you? God, can I trust you. Like if I surrender this, is it actually worth it? Is it actually a good thing to do? Or am I better off just taking care of my own self and living in my own isolation with me at the center of the universe? Am I better off doing that? That's the question. And our grip on things actually have a tendency to to tighten rather than, than loosen. The tendency is to hold on tighter every time there's a disappointment. Every time we, we focus on that promotion and that's the thing that we have to get to feel valuable. Every time we purchase something that our view can't go past our, our front door because all of our resources are kind of in, in a quarter acre lot. Our grip tightens on our things and we start to contr- want to control it more and more and the chance to trust is actually taking, taken away. And when, when, our, when our looking doesn't go any farther than that, right? Like, if, like if, if, if our purchases are, are really kind of where all our resources are going, so we can't look past that, the, then, then things like the car being too old and the house not being big enough and the TV not being HD enough and the phone not being Wi-Fi enough, and I don't think that's a thing, but I got going there a little bit. Like, those are the things we start to think about. That's what we start to dream about, that and that alone. And those things are probably true some of the time. They probably are. If you, you know, if you pulled up today in a 1973 El Camino that, that's like duct taped together, like your car may be too old, actually. But those things aren't true all the time. And when we start to believe they are true all the time, what, what's happening there is our things are starting to control us rather than the other way around. So unless we loosen the grip on the things we've been blessed with, the things that we've worked hard for, no doubt, no doubt we've worked hard for the things that we have, but unless we loosen the grip on those things, 
We can't be free to take hold of the kingdom of the one who blesses. And I've seen what it looks like for God's people to to set their eyes on the kingdom and loosen the grip of what they have, their time and their money, be generous to God's work and the things that he cares about. I've seen it so many times. And you know where I've seen it? Here. Like I've seen it in this community of faith. I don't have to go halfway around the world to to see it. Right here. I've seen it again and again and again. I saw it at the, the last nice serve that we did. 1,500 people that call Summit home across our campuses went out and just served other people, said, I'll give some of my time for the sake of someone in need. And they served with organizations and people that, that, that needed them, and it was a beautiful thing. In fact, since Summit has begun 14 years ago, there have been 100,000 hours of service given to the poor and the needy and the vulnerable and the lonely and the hurting in our city. If you quantify that, that's over 40 years of employment hours from this church. And what happens in those 100 hours is is we take Jesus up on his offer. He says, let your good deeds shine before people. And the promise is they won't actually praise you, which is a good thing. He says, they'll praise your father in heaven. And it happens. It happens when we serve others in that way. Every year, 15% of every dollar, penny, that comes in uh, through tithes and offerings in this place goes back out to ministry outside the four walls of Summit. Just to quantify that for you as a church, that's over a half a million dollars just last year alone went to uh, help vulnerable children in East Central Africa to see partnerships with with, uh, nonprofits doing great work in our own community and across the world happen to see food sustainability and economic viability and AIDS care happen for people that we could ignore but we shouldn't, to see dozens of missionaries supported and cared for through this community of faith, half a million dollars last year, and it'll be the same again this year. That's God leveraging resources. In the last seven years, I've seen multiple expressions of Summit come to life that didn't exist that weren't existing, not just here, this is one of them, but also Lake Mary at the 33rd Street Jail, expressions of God's church coming to life, popping up in in new places and in new ways, saying we wanna do ministry the way Jesus did ministry. We don't wanna just sit at home, we wanna go to people where they are to help them know they matter to God, just like Jesus did. You know when this started uh, about seven and a half years ago? The night we announced, like, hey, we're going to be a multi-site church, and we don't exactly know what that means, but we believe in going into communities to make it easier for people to worship Jesus. Uh, 38 people said, I'm in, which I thought was crazy at the time. 38 people, like, they didn't even know. They didn't know me. They didn't know what we were doing, really. I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, we, just, we just had this vision that, that people were worth it, and so we'd inconvenience ourselves to, to kind of make that happen. 38 people, that's where it all started. Now... There are about a a, a thousand adults and kids that worship at expressions of summit that didn't exist before those 38 people said yes. It's almost half the church. I love that that happens here. In the last five years, there have been over 700 people take the step of being baptized making a bold profession of their faith, saying, I want to live my life in a way that reflects his character. I believe that Jesus is the Savior, the one I need, that I can't get to God on my own, that he came to me, and I want to make my faith in him public. There have been over a 1,000 people, uh, a third of those at this campus, about a 1,000 people right now that are in Summit Connect groups, groups of people learning and serving and worshiping together creating the types of relationships where there's a first call when it's time to celebrate and a first call when it's time to lament. 
getting around people so that they can be loved and known and cheered on and challenged. That matters. Those things are happening here and have happened here because people are willing to let loose on the grip of what they have to join the movement of the giver. So 14 years ago, Summit started with a handful, handful of people and, and they wanted to, to, to go and, and boldly proclaim their faith and be an open community of faith where people could come in. And now this. So you can't tell me the church doesn't matter. You just can't. You'll never, ever, ever convince me that the church doesn't matter, that, that, that God's not up to big things in this world through his church. Just look around. This is the power of the people of God caring about what God cares about and being about what God is about. And this community will continue to be what it should be if we continue to be all in, a full-bodied sacrifice. Because people cross the line of faith here. People connect in relationships that they never would have imagined possible here. People serve others here. People's lives are changed now and for eternity here. That's why, that's the reason why I can't imagine not giving in this place. Because I want to see it happen again and again and again and again. I want to see Jesus' kingdom dream happen on earth as it is in heaven, starting right here in this room and moving out of it. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, present yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to the Lord. This is your true and proper worship. And the way that Paul says that, that offering, it's in a tense that says it's a one-time deal. It's a decision that's made, but it's actually a decision that's made again and again and again over time. It's a daily decision that has to be made. So now what? All of that, right? All those things are happening. God is doing incredible things. He's invited us in. What am I supposed to do now? What's the step that I'm supposed to take now of trust? Well, let me give you some suggestions, some thoughts to consider. For some of you, here's the next step. Move your giving toward, uh, toward lining up with the heart of God and the mission of God. Move your giving uh, to a posture like, like it matters. Like it matters now, like it matters for later because it actually does. And part of how God's people have done that, how they've moved their giving toward uh, the heart of God and the mission of God over time, pointing what they have that direction, is through something called the tithe. The tithe is a word that means tenth. It shows up in the scriptures pretty early on. We see uh, Abel, Adam's son, giving the first fruits of his labor over to God, that sacrificial system. It shows up in Genesis 14 when Abraham gives uh, a tenth of, of what he has to the priest Melchizedek. We see Jacob in Genesis 28 really codifying this and saying, of all that I have, I'll give you a tenth, God. We see it in Leviticus and Numbers and, and Deuteronomy, all kind of uh, being institutionalized for God's people to align to God's work. And if you're astute biblical scholar, you're like, hey, man, I heard a lot of Old Testament there, but this is New Testament, New Covenant stuff. Jesus never talked about the tithe. I don't think we actually have to do that. I think you're right, but Jesus never lowers the bar of faithfulness. Love will take you a lot farther than law ever will. So we'll start there. Some of you might say, well, hey, I would, but Paul says that thing about cheerful givers, right? Like, I'm not that cheerful about it, so I'm not supposed to do it. That's what Paul says. I'm just doing what the Bible says. Well, you become a cheerful giver the same way you become a cheerful jogger. <laughs> you do it. <laughs> Until you like it, and sometimes you don't. 
So 10% of your income, that's a good place to start. But please hear me say this. Please hear me say this. The tithe is in the scriptures. I think it's a good place to start. But what God is up to has almost nothing to do with math. It has almost nothing to do with math. It isn't what God wants to get out of you. It's what he wants to invite you into. And for some of you, giving 10% of your income to God's work seems like ridiculous. It seems like a, a, a crazy dream. You've been out of work. You, you've maybe been struggling. Maybe, maybe your finances aren't in a place where you can do that. If, if you're unemployed, underemployed, if you're struggling, let us know. Part of why we do this is so we can be family. But the suggestion might be just move in that direction. Move in the direction of generosity and see what God can do through that. And there's so many people here that are generous. And you'd be surprised, single moms who, who tithe, single dads who tithe, college students who tithe, who make $100 a, a week as a, as a waiter at a restaurant, they still tithe in this place because they believe in what God is up to. I don't know what faithfulness looks like for you this next step, but just move in that direction. Here's something that, that, that I know. Here's something I, I know. And this leads to the second thing that maybe is a step for you. There's gonna be somebody that walks through those doors on, on some Sunday. And it's gonna be a, a wife and, and a husband and a couple of young kids. And they don't even actually know what they're, what they're trying to, to find walking through the doors. They just think maybe there's some hope or maybe there's some, some community or, or maybe things can change if I, if I walk through those doors. So they'll kind of kind of fearfully walk through the door. And they'll be greeted at that door by, by, a smile, by someone with a smile and a handshake. And they'll actually realize, man, that's the first time I've felt noticed all week. And they'll walk back to base camp and they'll get checked in by nice volunteers and they'll walk back there and they'll feel at least a sense of trust because the people there were really nice and they believe that, that maybe their, their kids will hear that they matter to God over the next hour. And so then they'll grab a cup of coffee that was made just for them and, and they'll grab a bulletin from a volunteer that, that, was, uh, that was there to, to hand it to them. And they'll come sit in this sanctuary and they'll be here about 10 minutes early. They're the only ones that are early. So if you ever wanna meet somebody new, just show up 10 minutes early. They're the only ones that are here. And they'll feel just a little bit more comfortable because they'll have experienced something that was a little bit different. And they'll go pick their kids up after service, after hearing uh, the gospel, and, and their kids will be excited about it. And they'll come back the next week, and then the next, and then the next. And they'll call this place family, and their lives will be changed because they walked through those doors. You know how I know that's going to happen? Because it happens. It's also my story. That was me nine years ago. That's the Abbott story. The only reason I'm here is because of all of those things, because of the volunteers that served here that made us feel like part of the family. So if you serve as a volunteer here, thank you. You make this place happen. But if you don't, maybe that's it. Maybe that's what it looks like. Maybe giving a little bit of your time to, to, to serve others is, is what it means for you to take that next step toward seeking his kingdom and loosening the grip on what you have. Here at Summit, we really want you to pursue what God has wired you up to do, whether inside these four walls or outside of it, but there are ways inside these four walls. Right now, as a campus, here's where we are. We're about 15 to 20 volunteers short of having what we would call a full team of volunteers. I would love for you to be a part of it. 
Again, numbers are important only because numbers represent people. And I want every possible position for that family that walks through those doors to be greeted the way they should, to be cared for the way they should, to be loved the way they should. And so if you're waiting for a moment like, man, yeah, I've been thinking about serving, thinking about jumping in. I love how we're a church that serves, but I just kind of waiting for them to kind of like need me. We need you. We need you. And that family does. They don't know it yet, but they do. And I would love for you to be a part of welcoming them well in this place. My encouragement as, as we close out, as we close this series out, is to do what Jesus invites us to do, what he invited those followers 2,000 years ago, to set our eyes on the kingdom, a reality where People love God and love people all the time, everywhere. Let's set our eyes on that. Let's focus on that. And that might just allow our hands to loosen up just a little bit. Because we've been invited to join God in his mission, to move everything toward his good intention. So let's commit together to know enough about who God is. And if that means uh, opening a Bible or getting into a Summit Connect group, whatever you need to do to, to, to know more about who God is, do that. But knowing enough of who God is to care about the world around us and care enough to act. We'd love for you to be a part of what's happening increasingly in this place because I believe God is just getting started here. Let's pray. God, we're, we're grateful for your challenge, we're grateful for your, for your truth. That you've invited us into your mission in the world and it's gonna take something that's a little bit uncomfortable. It's gonna take surrender. It's gonna take us pushing all the chips in. But help us get a glimpse of it being worth it. If we, if we ever wonder if us boldly following you matters, put somebody in our way and someone in our sight that we can say, yeah, it matters. Help us see the transformation that you are doing in this world through your people. And help us take a step, even if just a step, toward trusting you with our time and our talent and even our resources, our stuff. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.